morning is in Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10. So as you're turning there, um, last week, Jeff, Pastor Jeff preached on a passage in Genesis 14, and Melchizedek, the priest king Melchizedek, showed up in Genesis 14, and he's this very mysterious, strange character. Um, In Genesis 14, he fed Abram and his men and blessed Abram with a priestly blessing. This passage that we're um, focused on today brings light to this mysterious, strange forerunner of Christ, King Melchizedek. So, Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who take the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Anna. So who is this strange guy? That's what we're talking about today. Um, This strange uh, enigma, this figure that uh, we'll talk about Melchizedek. Uh, Easier to say than Ketoleomer, which we said last week, so that's good. But our culture, if you think about it, has always had a thing for mysterious, enigmatic figures. People you just quite can't figure out. You just don't know kind of who they are. Uh, and that, that provide for us so much intrigue, whether it's a celebrity or an author or an entrepreneur, there can be this kind of mythological quality to these people. Many of them have biographies written about them, and we want to know more about their lives and what made them into the person they were. These enigmatic figures from Howard Hughes to Steve Jobs, from the author J.D. Salinger, who lived as a recluse his whole life, from Winston Churchill to Joan of Arc to Marilyn Monroe, enigmatic mysterious figures that our culture has always kind of become intrigued and obsessed with. This morning we pause for a moment to look at this strange enigmatic figure that was introduced uh, to us, as you heard from Anna say, last week in Genesis 14, Melchizedek, this strange guy. What are we to make of this Gentile priest king, uh, Melchizedek? He disappears from the scene as quickly as he shows up in chapter 14 of Genesis, but then he reappears in the book of Hebrews 
in a really big way for a guy that was just mentioned in like three verses of the Bible. And he points us to Jesus as he shows back up in Hebrews. So this morning we're going to look at the strange significance, we're calling it, of Melchizedek. The strange significance. So hopefully, whether you're in a room here at church or watching online, grab your outline, have your Bibles open to Hebrews 7. And let's begin by revisiting our story from last week just a little bit as we look at Melchizedek first in Abram's life. Remember from last week, if you weren't here, this would be a good just, uh, just bring you up to speed or refresher if you did listen last week. Abram gets drawn into this international conflict, this battle between these different warring city-states and kings. Keterleomer was the one king who led three others, and they routed the Canaanite kings, the five Canaanite kings that lived around the Dead Sea. It means they, they, they ruined them in war and destroyed some of the cities, including Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the process, they kidnapped Lot, Abram's nephew and his family. And we saw this miraculous transformation in Abram from this nomad wanderer to this man of kingly faith, if you remember last week. And supernatural courage is by the stealth of night, he took his 318 men, which the word says, and he unsheathed them like swords. And they struck at night and defeated Keterleomer and the other kings. And he saves Lot and his family his nephew Lot in the process, but in the aftermath of this great victory, there's a moment of temptation for Abram. As the great proud warrior who had all the spoils of war, he could respond in pride and scheme and try to bring about the promises of God with all this newfound wealth and land. Or he could celebrate as the victor and forget the great giver of the victory, God. The temptation for really self-promotion was real for Abram in that moment. But then this enigmatic king-priest This strange, mysterious man, Melchizedek, comes along to show him this. Here's uh, from last week's point, but just to refresh us today. He showed up, this mysterious king priest, to bring refreshment and blessing to sustain Abram in that moment of temptation he had, to help him get through it. He would remind Abram who he was. He would remind Abram who God was and how the actual victory had come in that battle. It's just two short verses are the only historical now mention of Abram, or excuse me, of Melchizedek in the Bible. Let me read them again. Actually, three verses. uh, Chapter 14, 18 through 20. Listen. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, that's Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's all he's mentioned. (laughs) It is funny. It really is. It's like, that's it. Scholars have been so challenged, theologians, pastors, by this mysterious figure that some have suggested he was an angel, or Gabriel, one of the archangels, or or an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. We're going to see some of those in Genesis, but I don't think this is one. By reading Hebrews now, And the Psalms, where he does show up in one verse, it's clear that he's thought of as a distinct human. Mysterious, yes, but a real Canaanite Gentile, so not a Jew, king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, which will become the holy city of Jerusalem. He was a real king, a real person. 
As Kent Hughes said about him, quote, he was holding the place like a placeholder for the future Davidic dynasty and its ultimate son, Jesus. So he was real, and he had a real important place in history. And it's for this reason, and Melchizedek's mentioned in Psalm 110.4 and then Hebrews 6 through 8, that we got to spend a few minutes this morning looking at him. Just a few minutes. So let's look now at the strange significance of Melchizedek. We re- just recapped what, what his pr- purpose and place was in Abram's life and his only mention in history. But what's the strange significance of him now? Let's unpack it a little. Well, a thousand years goes by from his first mention in Genesis 14. A thousand years, think about that, before he shows up again. It's incredible. So this, this, this mysterious person shows up around 2000 B.C., in real-time history with Abram in the story that we just went through, and doesn't get mentioned again until about 1,000 B.C. It doesn't sound like a very important figure, does it? In the life of David, David writes in Psalm 110, which is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament, most quoted in the New Testament passage in all the Old Testament, Psalm 110, so it matters, this psalm. He's quoted here. Uh, David starts the psalm saying, the Lord, but look at that, Yahweh, it's God, says to my Lord, that's David, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And down to verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. After the order of, there he is, Melchizedek. So a thousand years later, he gets another brief mention. As David writes of him in this psalm as a a type of figure that would not only be a, a forerunner for David, like David is also this priest from the order of Melchizedek, but also somebody beyond David too. We know that. David knows he's a priest king too, a successor to Melchizedek. So in this psalm, remember we sometimes look at Scripture on two levels. On this psalm, David is celebrating his rise to the throne. And he's saying, you know what, I'm like a priest king in the same order of Melchizedek. But he also calls out to someone greater than himself because he says he calls this person the Lord, Yahweh here. This one will be a priest forever. David is implying that someone will come after him, but be appointed by God. And the New Testament makes this really clear as Jesus and the apostles quote this passage, in, in especially verse 4, and apply it to Jesus, that he'll be the priest forever, that David was even talking about. Someone will come after him by an oath from God. You will be a priest forever, according to this man Melchizedek's order. In other words, what, what is David saying? God's going to establish, or he already has, this new priesthood. Entirely new priesthood. Greater than the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. Whoa! Do you know how important the Levitical, the Levites, that is? They were the priest people. How important the priests were to the Jewish people? I mean, they were super important. I mean, if the prophets brought God to the people... The priests brought the people to God. I mean, they really were an important role. Hebrews, which talks a lot about priests, says in chapter 5, every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Why? To do what? For? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the priest's role. That's pretty important. That verse really clearly tells us what, who they are, what they are. That's pretty important. He brings on behalf of people, of men and women, in relation to God, 
with a purpose, sacrifices that turn God's wrath away for a season. So let's then look now at Hebrews 7, because as I said, a thousand years later, he's mentioned again. It's the other place he shows up to look at this strange significance. We're going to look at four connections real quick before we apply this strange man, but four connections of significance between Melchizedek and, and Jesus now, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Because as verse 3 says in chapter 7, hopefully you've got it there, look down at it, it says, this one resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. He's a type of Jesus. Remember we talked about types and shadows and foreshadows. Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 3 says, or we'll put it another way, he points to Jesus like a sign, like a light, a flashing light. Let's look at our first significance. Melchizedek's strange titles of righteousness and peace point to, there's our type, point to, righteousness and peace being fulfilled in Jesus. I want to read verses 1 to 3 again. We're not going to read the whole passage again today, but these verses are really important. So follow along if you got it. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Abraham, I guess Abraham won, right? <laughs> the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abram apportioned a tenth part of everything. He's first. This is uh, Melchizedek now. He's first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem. That's king of peace. There's the two names. He's without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest forever. Well, what's his name? What are his titles? His titles are righteousness and, and peace, which is um, uh, shalom, peace, uh, a whole peacefulness. These are the two titles that Melchizedek is given in this Hebrew 7 passage. And these are the two titles, the very two titles that are applied to Christ. We look at this passage a lot at Christmas. Isaiah 6, the prince of what? Peace, yeah. Hopefully he said it out in the gathering place or online too. We're in the youth room. Prince of peace. And David says in another place on, on the throne of David, he will bring righteousness. Righteousness and peace. Peace and righteousness. These two titles that Melchizedek has, who resembles Jesus, will be fulfilled in Jesus. They'll be brought about in Jesus. He will make this happen. The psalmist says about the Lord in another place, Psalm 85, he says, in the Lord, righteousness and peace, they'll kiss each other. Righteousness and peace. It's kind of a funny image, but it's an intimate image, isn't it? As Melchizedek carried these two titles so Jesus would actually fulfill them. Not only in his own life, but for those who believe as well. Romans 3, we're going to quote a few verses today that help us understand this, is this. But now the righteousness, there it is, of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction it's the second side of that gospel coin we've talked about before, if you remember. Not only does Christ pay for your sin at the cross, 
that his blood covers you when you believe, but he also credits to you, gives to you, the other side of the coin, his righteousness, his goodness, Paul says in Romans here, for all who believe. When you believe in him, it's like your bank account is flooded over with the righteousness of Christ. He becomes your righteousness, your goodness, your holiness, your acceptance with the Father. All the while maintaining his holy character that he must punish sin, the just becomes the justifier. He also takes your punishment and gives you his goodness. That's how Jesus fulfills what Melchizedek could ever only foreshadow. How about peace? That's righteousness. The role of a priest was to bring uh, the people to God by appeasing God by, it's a big theological word, propitiating. It just means kind of appease, making him favorable is another way to put it, to the people through sacrifices. But here, Christ himself becomes for us the peacemaker between God and man. We've said it before, we're saved from God by God for God. We've said it that way before. Romans 5.1 also says, therefore, since we've been justified, saved, made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he not only becomes your righteousness, he becomes your peace. What amazing news this is. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you want peace with your maker? Do you want to know you're right in this world because you're not going to be judged according to your own works, but to Christ's righteousness and works? And have your sins paid for too? This is what Melchizedek points to, the righteous, peace-giving Son of God. Jesus is the one who makes righteousness and peace kiss. We get to see Christ's character in Melchizedek as this foreshadowing that Hebrews unpacks for us. That's where we find it. That's our first strange significance. Let's look at the second one. Each one of these gets almost more interesting than the last. Melchizedek's strange genealogy points to Christ's timeless, eternal life. Let's look at this second way. Verse 3 said, we've read it a couple times this morning, Melchizedek has no father, no mother, no genealogy, has no beginning or end of life. What a strange description for a human being, isn't it? I mean, he had to have some genealogy if he's a human, some place he came from, right? <laughs> and he's not still alive walking the earth, as far as we know. Melchizedek is not. But some have thought, because this description in Hebrews... It means that Melchizedek was either, as we said, the pre-incarnate Christ or some type of angelic being without mother, father, didn't die. But that's just not the case. That's an argument from silence. What do I mean by that? The writer of Hebrews wants to make the point that Genesis is just silent on who he is, where he came from, his mom and dad, his lineage, his birth and death. It's just silent on that. Melchizedek just shows up on the scene in such an important way and then departs from the scene, no mention of his family, no mention where he came from, where he lived and died, which the the patriarchs are always mentioned, that is, where they lived and died. He just shows up, and yet he's greater than Abram is the point. 
He doesn't get any of these mentions, and yet he's greater than Abram. We know this because Abram bows to him and pays the tithe to him. And the silence on these matters is to make us, just make us think, almost think about the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Why is that? All the Levitical priests, all of them, had to trace their family to Aaron. Priestly lineage, your heritage, your family mattered, really, really mattered greatly. Melchizedek, on the other hand, though, was a Gentile, probably Canaanite, a Canaanite priest. And Christ, we'll know, you know, will be from the line of Judah. So neither of them were Levites, Melchizedek or Jesus. And yet they're both priests, priests of a different kind of order, greater even. Jesus is really, in a way, without genealogy in some ways, the divine son of God, had a biological mother, but has no beginning or end either. And so Jesus' anointing for this priestly role, kind of much like Melchizedek's, didn't come from his family of origin, his great background, his purity with the Levite line. No, Jesus' priesthood came right from the mouth of God himself, right from an oath from God to his son, from the word of God himself, not from his family background. Well, and Levitical priests had to have a family line, but they also didn't serve forever. They lived and died, but even as they lived, they only served a 30-year term, I believe, was kind of the max. Melchizedek, though, wasn't limited. He was a priest forever. And so, too, Jesus Christ is an eternal high priest forever. The priest will be for his people forever, this priest Jesus. John 1, 1 through 3. He's eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That means before everything because all things were made through him, John writes. And without him was not anything made that was made. He is an eternal priest, commissioned by the very words of God, Jesus is, like Melchizedek. Well, here's our third one. Melchizedek's strange role. So we've got the strange genealogy we looked at, the strange titles or names, and now we've got this role. Strange role of both king and priest point to Jesus as the true king and priest we need. A Levitical priest could not be king. They were separate roles. Prophet was a separate role. Priest was a separate role. King was a separate role. There were the three really important roles in the life of God's people. Prophet, priest, king. They had different functions. They had different responsibilities. They came from different family lines usually. But here... Melchizedek the king, he's mentioned the word king, is I think, four times there. And his priesthood is really clear. He's also a priest. King of Salem, priest of Most High God. Both terms brought together in one person. So Melchizedek foreshadows the great priest king who would come, Jesus Christ, the other priest king. Now in Jesus, he brings together all three, prophet, priest, king. Today we're talking, focusing on priest, king. 
Zechariah, the prophet, makes this prophecy, which Jesus ultimately fulfills in chapter 6, 13. Here it is on the screen. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor, there's kingship, and sit and rule on his throne, that's king, and there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now David was the one who first who first applied this priest-king role to himself and sons. And if you look at Numbers and other places, David does do some priestly responsibilities as a king. He does do some of those things. He does it in Psalm 110. We saw that verse, 110.4. But Jesus is the truest ever, the best priest-king ever was or has been. He truly brought together in the most intimate, real, and the most powerful way that any person ever had on earth the priest-king. Look at just a couple verses from Hebrews. That's really what the whole entire book of Hebrews is about. Jesus, the better priest. Hebrews 7 says this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because it continues forever. Listen to this. Consequently, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you see what the author is saying there? These priests are gone. They live, they die, their work was temporary. But here, Melchizedek points to a greater order of priests Jesus, one who would live forever, which means that in your life, in my life, from beginning to end, on into eternity, from beginning to last, he's able to save because he'll never step away from this priestly role. He'll be in it forever. And it says he lives for this. He lives for this to make intercession for you. You know, that's Jesus' heart. His heart is is to be the go-between between you and the Father. This gentle and lowly heart that loves to do that for us. So what does the writer say? Draw near to him then. If that's who he is, spend the moments of your life living, drawing near to this eternal priest in ongoing discipleship. And share it with others, too, if you know this one. It's always interesting on Halloween to watch uh, the kids walk around with their parents. The older kids tend to be more bold than the younger, don't they? You go up to certain homes that have a little more scarier decorations, or as we had last night, someone take our breath away and jump out of bushes at us. That was not what we were hoping for. But... um, The older kids go right up to a door usually. They kind of march up. They stick out their bag. They boldly go ask for candy. The younger kids, if you've been with your kids or grandkids out trick-or-treating, they hang back a little, don't they, sometimes at some of these homes. Make sure nothing's scary, going to jump out at the door, out of the bushes, and no one's going to scare them. And when it does happen, what do the littler ones do? They just kind of run up to grab daddy's leg and bury their face right into daddy's stomach or side. Just cling on to mommy or daddy. 
like that kind of picture. We need to draw near to Jesus, the author says in Hebrews 7. Cling to him. Stick your face right in his bosom. Grab close and hold on for dear life to this eternal priest who intercedes for you. Cling for dear life through faith to this eternal priest. That's the picture we need. Like dependent children on a father. Come to him. And he lives for this very reason, we said. He wants you to come to him for that. Intercede with God the Father for you. It means that as priest, he has paid for your sins. He stands between you and the Father. He intercedes. He makes the Father favorable to you. So draw near. Let us draw near. Because he's the priest king. How about the fourth? The fourth strange significance of Melchizedek is his greatness. His absolute greatness, even though he's given three verses, points to Jesus as the superior, the greatest, the great high priest. It's the second half of the passage. We're not going to unpack it entirely. This Hebrews 7, it's 4 through 10 there. The author makes the case that Melchizedek's greatness points to Jesus' greatness. How does he do it? He does it in two ways in this Hebrews passage he points out. They come from the story. First one is this. Remember, Abram comes back with the spoils of war and could have lost his way with pride. But Melchizedek comes and verse 4 says, Abram gave him a tenth of the spoils. It's a pattern of, of tithing there. You only tithe to someone greater than yourself. We tithe to the Lord here at Bethany Church. You're not giving to me. You're not giving to the staff. You're not giving to the elders here. You're giving to the gospel work and mission of Jesus Christ here when you give. You tithe to someone greater than yourself. So when Abram tithes to Melchizedek, he's saying, this one is greater. But a Jew might respond and say, well, yeah, okay. Well, the Levites collected tithes too. And that's where the writer goes. This is where the author says, yes, yes. But the Levitical priesthood would come from Abram. Like the old thought that your family line was essentially in your body, basically. Your entire family line was in your body already. And so if the Levites came from Abraham, he says, you know what? It's like the Levites themselves were paying a tithe to Melchizedek. That's how great he is. The priest is superior in all ways, the writer of Hebrews is saying. This one who gets three verses now, remember? That's the first way. And the second one is this. The greater always blesses the inferior in the Bible, in the ancient cultures of peoples. And verse 7 says it's beyond dispute that the superior blessed the inferior. Wait a minute. Melchizedek blesses Abram? The one who's given the promises that all the earth in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed? Melchizedek blesses that one? who was given that blessing, all the families of the earth. Do you see what the author's doing here? He's saying, yeah, Abram is the great man of faith, but he doesn't even compare to Melchizedek. And if he doesn't compare to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek doesn't compare really to Jesus, how great is Jesus? Here's the one who blessed the blesser. (laughs) So here's a summary then. Melchizedek as a type of priest-king points to Jesus, the eternal 
Son of God, without beginning or end, who has all the qualifications and character and traits to be appointed by God to save you and I to the ends of the earth. That's who he is. And all of this was contained or foreshadowed in Melchizedek 2,000 years before Jesus would arrive. But now we're 2,000 years on from Jesus, aren't we? So what in the world does this have to do with us? (laughs) Is this just some kind of interesting tidbit of Bible history and facts and knowledge to kind of surprise people with? No, he's got a significance for our life. So let's close with it. Melchizedek's significance in our lives. What is his significance? Why does all this matter? I mean, it might intrigue some of us who like mysteries or different layered levels of meaning and stories. Why does it matter for you and I? Let's look at three quickly. Here's our first one. Melchizedek's significance in our lives, the personal application of righteousness and peace now. The personal application. Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and peace. But he could never make you righteous. Melchizedek could never actually give you peace. But Jesus Christ can and does. That's the application. If you've trusted Christ today, he's gifted you his perfect righteousness through faith. It means you don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. You don't have to wonder if you've been good enough to earn God's favor because you can't and it's been given to you already in this priest king. If you've trusted him. As one who far surpasses the Old Testament Levitical sacrifices as he's become your once and for all payment. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. That's the personal application. He bridges the gap between humanity and a holy God. And he brings you peace. An eternal peace that can give you comfort in the here and now, right now. So whatever happens these next few months, whatever 2021 brings, because 2020 has been a doozy, hasn't it? You can know that you have the only peace that truly really matters in Jesus. Your entire life could get turned upside down with every type of chaotic thing in 2021. We don't know the future. But if you've got the peace of Jesus Christ, whatever this life on earth brings doesn't define your future, doesn't define what your eternity is going to look like. Your eternity is going to be one of peace because he's brought you peace with your maker. That's personal application of Melchizedek. That matters. The peace that ushers you into eternity will make every trial on earth that feels like a flood now feel like a little tiny speck of a drop of water or just a a little mist. Oh, what was that? A little mist. It doesn't feel like that now, but the peace of eternity is going to make it feel like a little drop. Whatever you've gone through here. And if you personally haven't trusted Christ for his righteousness and peace, what are you waiting for? Today's the day of salvation. You can be the righteousness of God. You can have his peace today by repenting and believing. Whether you're here or you're watching online today, this is all such a personal relevance to us. We couldn't imagine any more. Let's look at the second one. 
Melchizedek's significance in our lives. Let's look at now the person. Let's go to the neighborhood application. We're doing a personal and neighborhood. We're going to close with the third one. I'm sure you've noticed there's a lot of tension in our neighborhoods, in our towns, in our cities, in our nation. Everyone seems just to be a little bit on edge, just waiting for someone to cross them, to give them a piece of their mind. Add to that, there's these kind of heightened levels of hopelessness. Everyone's wondering, will I get COVID? Will I lose my job? Will my 401k be there? Will Social Security dry up? Will global warming destroy us? Will this nation implode? Will Canada be safe? Will Portland ever calm down? What's the world going to look like that we leave to our children and grandchildren? All these questions are out there amongst our neighbors. Whether you agree with all of them or not, or would ask even those yourself, they're out there. And people are feeling high levels of hopelessness right now. And they're valid questions and concerns, all of them. Our neighbors, our friends, our neighborhoods, our families, they're just looking for some sign of hope. I don't think we realize what we carry with us when we enter a room. When you enter a neighborhood, when you pull into your driveway or walk down your street, we don't realize what we carry with us. Maybe you're the only Christian on your street. Maybe there's a few. Do you know what that means? You carry with you the risen Savior. You are a lighthouse in the fog. You're a fluorescent hunting vest in a dark forest. We'll put it a bunch of ways. You're a spotlight on a stage. But you know what's so great? You get to point the light and shine on someone else. Your responsibility is not to save them. Your responsibility is to share and shine on and point to the one that will give them hope. Because this election is going to come and go. You know, 50% of the people are going to feel hopeless on Tuesday, 50 maybe percent or not. I don't know. But ultimately, Jesus Christ is the only one who can give this true hope that our neighborhoods need, that your families need, that your neighbors need. And when you go somewhere, you carry this priest king with you. How do we know? He's of the order of Melchizedek. He lives forever. He's alive, living in you now. He gives us that eternal perspective of peace and salvation that brings hope. So there's personal application of Melchizedek. There's neighborhood application. Let's close with the political application. Don't you want to do that? (laughs) Maybe not. The political application of the true king we need. I'd be remiss if I didn't say something about this week. As you saw, you maybe watched our midweek video this week. 2020 has been exhausting from all these things we've mentioned. It's wrapping up with the contentious election. And I've heard more talk as we get closer and closer to election day that people are bracing for the worst. They're bracing for the worst, regardless of who wins. There's people despairing over the post-election fallout. People despairing over the divide in their own families over politics. People despairing that the church is identified maybe too closely with one political party and equated Christianity with a political platform and a leader. There's those who are despairing that the church hasn't enough allied close enough with one political party. It's all over the board. 
there's plenty to find yourself fretting about as we move into the end of 2020. And no one knows what tomorrow brings. No one knows what Tuesday is going to bring. And no one in this room knows what 2021 is going to bring. You just couldn't predict it. No, we couldn't have predicted 2020. But here's what we need to remember this week. We have a true leader. We have the true leader we need. And the true leader is never going to be a political leader, as important as those are. The true leader is the sovereign king of this world. That's who you have this week, regardless of what happens. But here's the question. This is a hard question. And I don't mean by this any um, negativity toward our nation, towards our history. But is he so valuable to you that if America implodes, and it might, it might, will you still serve him as the ultimate king? That if that happens, will you realize you've still not lost the greatest thing, the greatest leader? Let's imagine for a minute that America does implode. And that anarchy turns to tyranny, which leads to persecution for us? Will your citizenship of heaven as a sojourner on earth be enough to sustain you? Will you pursue the kingdom of heaven that even if the kingdom of America is lost and not thrown in with it, you'll still be all in for the kingdom of heaven? It may come to that. It might. And it serves us well to think in those terms, even if it's hypothetical, to know how will you respond? Is he on the throne of your life that even if that was to happen, you don't need to despair? Don't despair this week. And here's the beauty of it all. He's the sovereign, reigning, ruling, powerful king. This one is the same Jesus we're going to celebrate this Christmas who was born in a manger as a baby who died the sacrificial death of the lamb, humble, rejected, beaten, spat upon for you. That's the saving, reigning king. That's where the kiss takes place of righteousness and peace. And we get to see that at the Lord's table too. The Lord's table. And we know... From the story even, Melchizedek nourished Abram. What did he nourish him with? Bread and wine. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Kind of an interesting, I'm not quite sure. The connections may be there, but if not, it seems pretty clear that Jesus came and brought bread and wine too to his disciples in the upper room. Even these are that symbol of the true nourishment we find in his real body and blood. So as we come to the Lord's table now, we get to come to the place, the cross, where righteousness and peace kiss again. We get to rehearse the gospel story as we take the elements again. So take a moment as David gets ready. He's going to lead some guitar in all the rooms, streaming. Take some time to think about this greater Melchizedek. Maybe it's a time of confession for you. Maybe it's just a time of silent prayer or contemplation. If you don't have an element, um, 
make, real quickly make your way over to one of the tables in your, uh, in your venue or grab elements at home. And if you're not a follower of Christ today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you, to don't take it this time. It's a family meal, and it doesn't make sense to nourish and eat upon the family meal if you wouldn't call yourself one of the family members. It's not anything, saying anything negative about you. Just encourage you to not take it. Let's take a couple minutes in silence.